0: Emma. And I'm Colin. And this is Frederick Uncut.
1: We're talking about what you're curious about across the county with a new episode every Tuesday.
0: This week, banks have data on us dating back decades, websites are tracking our every move, and just how do those apps use their microphone permissions on our phones. Marzar's Director of Cybersecurity, Philip Jones, and Mount St. Mary's professor, Mary Catherine Kennedy, break down the complexities of digital privacy and safety including how to protect yourself, the increasingly common internet shaming trend, and the new privacy laws you should know. All right, Philip. So we have some questions for you about cybersecurity and digital privacy today, and and I was asking you a little bit about um, what the individual should be thinking about. And you see a lot of these things on a day to day basis. Could you run through maybe you know a couple of the points that you would suggest to an individual, to a consumer, when it comes to privacy online?
2: Yeah. So <clears throat> there's a there are a few things. Uh, wh- one of the uh, the nice things is uh, companies that now have uh, cookie consent. In other words, they po- have a pop-up that says, do you consent to these cookies? That's an indication that they are either working on or have gone down the path to be uh, either European or the California Consumer Privacy Act compliant or moving in that direction. So what that means is they're they're somewhat serious and uh, about... Your privacy, and uh, and and by virtue of that, uh, they're probably a little bit more secure than some of the other websites. So that that's a nice indication. It's not a an end all. You know, you still should look for other things like when you're going to send private information that there is an encryption sign down below, so that your information's being done encrypted, and and also uh, Semantec and Semantec's c- competitors. Uh, they have solutions where you put it on your your, whether your home PC or or whatever it is and they have fraudulent website detection as well so the combination of those two are usually a pretty good indication that you're on a safe site and uh, and so that those are things that I look for personally Uh, in addition to that you can configure your own web browser to not provide cookies or to, uh, they're even starting to build some things in there. Uh, certain, uh, certain ones where you can even pre-configure uh, your consent to things. So these are some, some are basic and some are a little bit more advanced.
1: But these are some good, good
2: practices. We
1: were, uh, we were talking about the cloud before uh, we called you today, and uh, we we're kind of. Uh... Emma and Wait. I were just kind of wondering about <laughs> yeah. sort of a primer on, on the cloud, and and
0: because you mentioned it could be more safe potentially, and maybe that's something you advise companies to put more information on the cloud. How should the public think about that and understand that?
2: Oh, the public, yeah, but, uh, as in like a consumer. Well, I think it's so, so. This is how it kind of works: is when you're a, a well any, any size company really, but let's just say small to mid size, let's say 5 billion and under, right. So, which are a tremendous amount of companies out there. They, they typically don't keep up their patching. They have an application, they customize to the nth degree and they can't even, they're afraid to even move on from some really archaic, System like Windows NT, even Windows 95, sometimes, and you even take some of these uh, the retailers out there, right? The retailers keep your credit card um, usually for 30 days uh, in case of disputes or whatever. And some of these systems are uh, <laughs> really old systems. Yeah. So if you if, so if someone is moving to the cloud, what that means is that they. That these systems are past and up to date, and they uh, they're all going to be vendor approved. In other words, uh, the vendors, whether it's Microsoft or, or Google or whoever, uh, they're all supported because the cloud provider will not uh, u- utilize an unsupported uh, device. So, so these are very positive things for the consumer uh, when right. someone so says, as "Hey, a we're working our cloud this. for business." Our, all of right. our business in the cloud that's a good thing meaning that whatever they ask the cloud provider to do, that com- cloud provider will, will ensure that those things are tightened and that's what I sent you down below where uh, the routers and standard firewalls you know that that's supported when it's uh, an infrastructure if it's a platform then it will go down to the operating system and then if it's the application, they'll secure it up to the application. You know, the access control and data points, uh, that's always going to be the cloud provider. The cloud pro- I mean, I'm, that's always going to be on the uh, the organization. But, I mean, it's it, it costs less money to operate in the cloud, and you're always operating uh, at least with uh, an operating environment that is supported by the vendor. And right now, you know, I just got through writing up something for uh, – our finance group they said hey you know our customer wants to go and uh put banking information through erp right well well erp is one of the top things that are targeted uh so you don't really want to put your uh someone's bank's banking thing in there and start doing wire transfers via erp see these are decisions that that a cloud provider will just say well you can go ahead and do that but you know this is all we're supporting (laughs) right
1: but um Anyways, well, what, did I answer
2: what, your question there?
1: Yeah, yeah. What? Uh, just real quick. What is ERP? Oh, that—that's. Those are the systems that that essentially manage
2: all of your your. Uh, oh geez, I, I just I lost the acronym here. I've got it up here somewhere. It, it basically manages all of your your finances uh, within the organization. Okay, uh, I have it up here somewhere.
1: Forgot the acronym. That's okay.
0: Yeah, that's okay. (laughs) I mean, um, I was also interested when you, um, when we first kind of wrote, which was when you were describing the different... Um, laws that businesses have to take into consideration and how those might be changing, how those might be becoming more strict. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about what that effect might be um, on a consumer because we've seen a lot of privacy uh, stories in the news just in the last uh, year, we're seeing news about facial recognition services and how that can be used. Um, you know, and any other number of of changes to privacy law. Are there any that a consumer might be particularly interested in knowing, or might really affect the way that their information is stored or used, or or whatnot?
2: Yeah, yeah, there is. Just real quick, ERP is enterprise resource planning, so that's an internal thing. Uh-huh. Aha. Okay. Um, uh, so, so with regard. To um, the the privacy uh, and the privacy laws. Uh, ask your question one more time, just just so I make sure I capture it
0: correctly. Yeah, so I was just asking about, you know, there are a lot of uh, laws that might affect businesses, and you might deal with that a lot um, that that are becoming more strict in terms of privacy, and so I'm wondering, what impact might that have on a consumer? How should they understand how their information is being used differently? I was just saying how we'd seen it a lot in the news, you know, things like facial recognition, how that can be used. I mean, can you just speak to how that might affect a consumer?
2: Yeah, it's 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 vast, really, and it's it's really m- mainly positive. So um, I'll go from public and, and I'll kind of uh, hit these different segments. So, for example, I was working uh, with a, a, a rail company, and the rail company wanted to have video uh, of people in the rail, and if, if they saw them wearing sweaters and taking sweaters off and 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 they wanted to adjust the temperature. They wanted to increase the comfort and and things like that. Well, I mean, when you have that, uh, you know, that that's a privacy thing, especially in the European privacy law. So what you have to do is, you, there has to be signage that that posts things out there that says, "Hey, you are being video recorded," and 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 provide a reason why they're being video recorded and and things like that. And. So in that case, this is a really good thing and, and people are aware that this is exactly what it's being used for. So you know, someone might get nervous or whatever and things like that. But, so that's a real positive thing. Um, there, uh, another real positive thing, uh, I'll tell you one thing that is, is a big problem out there <laughs> is the banks have your data from 20 years ago right? They're, they're sitting, they're, they, they keep it. And it's not just banks, it's marketing firms. And But banks right now have a problem. And they just like, hey, collect it, keep it, keep it. And there's no justification as to why, right? Some of them, uh, any, and this happens even some of the automotive industry, but that's more of a business to business thing. But But regardless, the banks are keeping my private information, your private information, and they've had it you know, I don't know, in high school, I had a fifth, third bank. They, they ha- somebody has that information from when I was in high school, doing nothing with it. It's just sitting there with my Social Security number sitting around, increasing my risk. Well, these new privacy laws say, hey, you have to justify why you're keeping the data, how long you're keeping it. Uh, you know, if you're keeping it for legal reasons, that's fine. You keep it for the legal reasons. But if you're no longer using it, you must get rid of it. And depending on how, how big a deal this is, so you take some of the big banks – they could have hundreds of millions, maybe even close to a billion people, if you think about this, that they had this information not doing anything with. If someone were to break into that and expose that, then these banks would definitely get the maximum fine, and that would be 4% of their previous year's annual revenue, right? So if that's $100 billion they made previous year, that's a $4 billion fine. And then, uh, then you have some things like Facebook, right? Facebook, the thing that's happening over in Europe on Facebook, that's totally driven by the EU privacy law and, uh, and the fact that they're using uh, information to profile people. And uh, some of this is really bad. I'll, I'll give you an example of um, there was a lady that went to the doctor and found out she was pregnant. Um, she didn't want anyone to know about it. So, but, but she went to the doctor. Um, I don't know how they found out that she went to a doctor. Uh, she purchased a, uh, a kit to test her pregnancy. And all of a sudden she started getting mail about pregnancies and child and everything like that. It was a big to do. And, you know, people are saying, Hey, why, why are you receiving this? And it was, it was actually – you could look it up, um, but that was a big to-do. And really – and the, the moral of that is, is that is that – it's not the moral of the story, but the, the why this is significant is there's processing going out there. We're getting profiled, and you're being profiled, and you don't know why. There, there's some kind of mathematical formula. Sometimes even the people in the companies don't know how this comes about because it's a big mathematical formula. Well, some of these mathematical formulas. Uh, there's also been some instances where there's been racial profiling because of this. So the all of these things are starting to come around, and this is all really starting to be very good for the consumer, for the people and their rights. You know, people are no longer allowed just to randomly collect information because they want to, and things like that.
0: Right. So with all this, you know, these changes, are there some things that still have not been addressed by law or, or things that you would say are the most concerning that still exist for consumers?
2: Well, for, I'll just address U.S. From a U.S. perspective, there's a real risk. So one of the things that from a European perspective, what they did is they said, well, you have to consent to things. And then after you consent... So if you're going to collect private data on me or, or if I'm going to give you private data, you have to, the companies have to have my consent. Right now, there's really not that there. The California Consumer Privacy Act was the first one that, that started enacting real privacy laws. The others were more, uh, you know, incident response. You got a notification if you got broken into and things like that. Nothing really there. Well, but even there, uh, the the California Consumer Privacy Act, it was really consent had to be if you're under the age of 16 kind of thing. So the whole consent thing is still not that not happening in the U.S. Right. But but that's okay. You know that there there's there's some problems with consent and, you know, so there's some aspects that, that need to be worked out. And I'm not sure that the GDPR probably has a pretty decent one, but it's very onerous. They're saying you have to have a check mark for consent. You have to have a separate area that says this is complaint management, that you understand that checkmark and a few other things. So, that's, so you have to balance between the two. But the real problem that I think is, uh, well, when was this? I think it was three or four weeks ago, but uh, you can look it up. About a, um, it was um, there was a Senate hearing with uh, Google and Facebook, and uh, I don't know if it was at t or Verizon, and it was a privacy summit of uh, sort. It was uh, basically Congress asked them to come and talk to them about privacy, but there was no privacy advocates there, and so what's happened is the California Consumer Privacy Act. Was really kind of big and almost equal to the European GDPR on data subject rights. And this, the big concern is that these guys are getting together with, you know, the Senate, you know, the the House and the Senate, and they're going to create a national law, and you're, they're going to create it in, in, in the way that uh, a, a state cannot make it more strict. So right now, if someone it currently at the at the ccpa that's california consumer privacy act currently if you go and sell a bunch of my uh, sell all of our information and make a profit of it or if you're doing it large volumes then you have to you have to notify someone you have to notify the people that this information is is being shared and sold so that has to be notified and, and I can also invoke my rights, right? I want to see what you have on me. I want to edit it. I want to make sure it's accurate. I want you to delete it, right? So those data subject rights are built in to the California Consumer Privacy Act. But these big guys, the, the Googles, the Facebooks, and, and there's a handful other, I, I would recommend that you can go and, and search for an article for it because it will tell you the exact companies that were there. They want to have a national law, and they essentially want to reduce or very much minimize the data subject rights, which is the consumer rights. And that would be – wow, that would, that would be so counter to the rest of the world because you know, Canada's, Canada usually follows the United States when it comes to regulation. Canada is already beefing up to, to operate or have a similar thing. Australia is doing it. It's all, I mean, the whole world's catching on, right? The whole world's doing that. So if the U S doesn't do that, then that's a problem for U S companies. But what will end up happening is the companies have to do business with other companies. So then they're going to have to be in compliant with these European laws anyways. But the ones that don't, they're, they're just U S based companies. Um, you know, that's, that's a problem because there's, there's no data, data subject rights and, and um, and so that's a concern I would have, is that the federal government is going to reduce, minimize uh, the data subject rights. That's the main concern that consumers should have, and they should fight for that.
1: I know that you do uh, some work for uh, Frederick here locally to us. Um, and when it comes to Maryland and sort of state law, uh, are there certain states that are, are are more advanced in privacy law than, than others. Yeah. And where does Maryland fall on that? Maryland, Maryland's pretty relaxed. Uh, You know, there, most laws out there have something
2: around, you know, your, um, your driver's license and social security numbers and things like that. And Maryland, I think in January had expanded that. I think I put a link in to the email I sent you. If I don't, if I didn't, then let me know. But you can look it up. It's PIPA, P-I-P-A, and that's the law, right? It's, it's, not, it's pretty pretty meek from Maryland's perspective. Maryland's way behind other people. Uh, California is traditionally the front runner. Uh, Ohio is starting to do some things. Massachusetts doing some things. I think I read – I don't want to give you a number, but over half the states have some kind of privacy law in place. Uh, most states have something more around, you know, if
1: you get broken into you have to respond to somebody. But Maryland is pretty but, uh, lax. Uh, yeah. Go ahead. Uh, I'm sorry. Maryland is, is pretty lax. You said it. it that kind of lags behind most other states. That's good to know.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, uh, the, the,
2: the interesting thing is, is that. There's going to be a federal law, right? Because people are freaking out about this California Consumer Privacy Act, Um, but they can only do it for California citizens, you know, because it's just a state thing. Um, I I think there's a lot of work to do there, but the, uh, in essence, the essence is there, Um, and I really think that, I mean, there's has to be a point in time the U.S. has to bend a little bit. Because the, otherwise, it'll be the rest of the world has all these privacy laws, and the U.S. doesn't. Which, you know, we're, we're a big international country, so I don't know. A very high percentage of the companies will, will meet some type of privacy anyways. And if they don't, they're in trouble because there was a study uh, done primarily in Europe. I don't know if they really covered the U.S. too much. But uh, some of the things that they had people that they call privacy advocates and of the thousands of people that they um, they interviewed, I think it was it was a small percent, you know, it was like under 10 percent were privacy advocates. But those privacy advocates would spend more money uh, with that company and also they would promote that company, you know, via electronic means, whether it's Facebook or LinkedIn or whatever. So, there, and then some of the banks that really got on this fast, uh, they're seeing some market share shift. So, I, I think there's going to be just natural pressure for the companies to, to start having things like cookie consent and things like that. I mean, one of the things that, like, there's a, I, I'm giving an opinion on a telecommunication act that's going to be coming up, and they, they were really relaxed. About some of their statements. Uh, see, North American companies or North American law—it was really about the protection of the government and protection of businesses. And uh, the only real protection outside of that was the right to work kind of thing, you know, that that makes sure people aren't discriminated. And so that protection was more around that than the privacy. And see, the European viewpoint, and this has been around since 1995, by the way, it's, this isn't new, it's just there's been, the expansion beyond Europe has been new. But uh, their viewpoint of, they call it a data protection impact assessment. We would call it in the US, a, a privacy impact assessment. But the difference is, is that when we do risk assessments in, in businesses in North America, it is the risk to either compliance with the government or the risk to our company. The Europeans, it is the risk to the individual. So that's a shift, right? That, that's, a, that's incorrect thinking. So when we are looking at this Telecommunication uh, Privacy Act that we're kind of responding to, um, it, that wording is still the same. It's still the same North American, U.S., Canadian wording where they don't really care about the citizens per se. They don't care about the risk to the citizen, per se. And uh, so that's a fundamental difference that has to change with the U.S. And, and Canadian governments.
0: And so you see the U.S. moving toward more of a European model?
2: Well, I, I think they're, they, they have to do some things. Um, one of the big problems, so, so, so the Euro, are, are you familiar with um, Privacy Shield? Used to be called Safe Harbor. No. No. Okay. So, so safe harbor was is so the European laws they allow other countries to kind of certify that um, that they're that they have some type of regulation in place, and companies can certify to those regulations. So, so the U.S. US had safe harbor, which basically allowed companies to communicate back and forth from Europe and to the U.S. And what these are, these are essentially privacy frameworks. Well, there's a big lawsuit and uh, Safe Harbor, there's a lawsuit by uh, uh, privacy advocates in Europe saying, hey, Safe Harbor doesn't even come close to to meeting uh, our European regulations. And so they canceled. They said, no, it's no longer valid. So then the U.S. created something else called the Privacy Shield. And so, so the latest regulation that came out May 25th, GDPR, um, you know, Privacy Shield was in place, and then you could still transfer information from the U.S. company to a European and back and forth, and because the Privacy Shield was an accepted framework. Well, uh, the legislation over in the European Union came out and said, "Hey, you know, uh, Privacy Shield's not valid." Now they they don't have that power, right? They can't say that, but they did. They came out and said it anyways. And and then uh, the governing body over the EU says, "Hey, you can't say that, and you know, Privacy Shield's fine." But its days are numbered because what's going to happen is there's going to be a lawsuit, and then Privacy Shield will have to shift or change. And the one major thing that the U.S. does not have is it does not have a central um, body to receive complaints about privacy. So if you say Germany, France, England, all those guys, if, if you have a problem with a company, in other words, uh, you said, hey, I, I want to see what kind of private information you have on me. And the company says, okay. And then... They didn't respond in the amount of time that, that they needed to respond. Well, then that individual, that single individual or a group of people could make a complaint to a data, data protection authority, an entity in all those countries that will receive the complaints, and they'll have an investigation and talk to the company, and then the company could get fined. Well, that does not exist in the United States, and you know how long things are to get things moving. So it's highly unlikely that the privacy shield will will be maintained at some point in time because there, there will be a lawsuit and they'll lose it because there's no um, there's no entity to receive complaints, among other things. There's other problems with that. Right, right. That's that's. A big one.
0: So, Philip, we really uh, are grateful for your time. Are there maybe a few um, other things you mentioned, um, maybe making changes to cookie settings and things like that? Are there just a few other things a consumer could do to maximize privacy online? Are, are there, are there, you have a few other tips?
2: Uh, not, not really. I mean, there are, uh, you know, if you're concerned uh, and you don't mind, um, Well, actually, you could potentially not store your credit card, say, at Amazon, not stored on Amazon, and um, you can store your private information. Uh, You can get these tools like, uh, I just use Symantec because that's who I use, but there are other vendors out there that are just as good, but they they all have a vault, and they can have all my private information in that vault, which is highly encrypted. Right. Um, and then I can go and start filling out a form and it fills out my form for me. Um, it can help you with credit card information, things like that. But the more that you can reduce that, um, you know, obviously the less footprint you have, the better off, but then you're, you're sacrificing, uh, convenience. So Mm -hmm. you have to figure out how you want to do that. There are other things, um, that I'm not as familiar with, uh, I'm just starting to get into the whole fraud detection with the mm-hmm. banks, but, um, you know, the banks are pretty good about fraud detection. And if you have a concern, you can definitely call up and tell the banks that, uh, I have on my phone, um, like I have an American express. I put it into my iPhone and whenever, uh, my credit cards used, I receive a pop-up just like it was a, a text that says, Hey, uh, your American express has just been charged. Um, I would recommend doing that for all your credit cards. Mm-hmm. And then you're, auto, you're auto-notified every time your credit card's used.
0: Right, right. Okay, great. Uh, well, we really appreciate you talking with us, and um, thanks for the time.
2: Sure, sure. Hopefully, hopefully it was helpful.
0: Yeah, it was. Thanks so much.
2: Okay, take all care. Right, bye.
0: Right, bye. So, Colin, we just had a chance to hear a little bit from Philip Jones about the technical side of things, and it's really a complex topic. But now I want to talk a little bit um, with – a Mount St. Mary's professor, and um, she's going to tell us a little bit more about the you know, social side of things, how students and young people are using the internet and thinking about their privacy. So I had a chance to sit down with her a little bit while you were out of town.
1: All right, let's have a listen.
0: So I'm here with Mary Catherine Kennedy, and she's an assistant professor of communications at the Mount. Um, Mary Catherine, thanks for joining us. No problem. Um, I, I really want to talk to you a little bit about what you um, teach in your classroom and here in your classroom in terms of security online and and safety online, privacy online. Um, can you talk a little bit about what that looks like generally when you're talking about the social media world? So Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. I mean, what are some of the concerns in, term, in terms of privacy that, that you might raise for students? So I teach a
3: social media class at the Mount where we start the, the semester with talking about all the different types of platforms. And then as we go further and further into the semester, we get into specific areas. And then just this past week, we actually talked about privacy on Tuesday and then how that privacy can be breached and then used against us, like data that they take away from us, used against us to publicly shame us. And so that's been the, the topic for this week. So it's really fresh. Students are really somewhat apathetic when it comes to their social media use because they it's been around for their entire lives they're between the age, the ages of 18 and 22 24 facebook has been around and they've been on it since middle school whereas i've only been on since my freshman year of college which was the year that it came out so our understandings of where and how we use the social platforms are are completely different and so their apathy i think comes from the fact that because it's so normalized and they know that, I mean, they've had smartphones for the vast majority of their lives as well that that have had really great technologies to take pictures and video where they just expect that that is going to be happening. And so they have this lack of concern in some cases until it's brought into their attention. And then they're like, oh, wait, maybe I should be a little bit careful about what I'm posting.
0: Right. I mean, do you think it depends on the age of person? You're kind of saying, you know, the younger you are that you start to use these things. Is there like a cutoff age when people become or are more skeptical in terms of what they put online? You feel like millennials are just naturally less skeptical because it's been around
3: they're they're skeptical to a degree, but it's really interesting. They I one of the assignments that I had them do this semester was something I called a online reputation and audit project where they I asked them to go through and take an audit of all of their social profiles and oh, for gosh. some of them it was difficult <laughs> because they have quite a few, but for others, I mean, I have students who are really only on LinkedIn. Yeah. And maybe I think some of them are on Twitter because I make it an extra credit component of the class that if they uh, use Twitter to talk about things that relate to what we've been talking about in class, they can get extra credit uh, using our class hashtag. So they did this audit project and they're embarrassed about what they were posting back in, when they were in seventh grade. Yeah. Um, they they think they're like, oh, well I've deleted my profile. And I'm like, did you actually delete it or is it just deleted off of your phone? Hmm. You know, there's a difference between because there is a storage bank of everything that we've ever posted. Even if we think we can't access it anymore, as soon as you put your 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 name and your password back in, everything reappears.
0: So can I, if I wanted to totally wipe my presence on the Internet, I have Twitter, I have Instagram, I have Facebook. Is that possible or are you saying, you know, I mean, obviously you can't just delete an app from your phone, But is it possible to totally have a clean slate like when you're going back in those audits
3: i don't really think that it is i think that for all intents and purposes we can for the most part try to do it and pretend it doesn't exist but like i said (laughs) as soon as you re-enter your password and your username everything that you supposedly deleted comes back
0: is there a permanent delete button on facebook I don't, know. I don't think so. <laughs> yeah. I,
3: non, none that I'm aware of. Yeah. So I, I mean, I, I'm assuming that you have to be a pretty good internet sleuth or hacker to find something that someone has gone through and deleted. But there's cache systems of, yeah. of everything that I mean, even from the, the ages of web 1.0, like we're talking about back in the 90s, I'm sure there's information that has always it will always be there it's just how
0: deeply buried is it yeah like is your myspace account still out there yeah
3: or your (laughs) Zenga or like something like that so
0: um so you mentioned shaming online Mm -hmm. i mean what kind of was the conversation um around that well they i have them read a
3: chapter out of john ronson's uh book so you've been publicly shamed and then we watch his ted talk uh that really specifically focuses on the case that's in the chapter that they read it's about justine sacco who um, is a PR professional who tweets a fairly acerbic uh, tweet about AIDS in Africa and how she's going to be going to visit there, but she's not going to. She she herself won't get AIDS because she's white. So it's like an awful, awful tweet Mm -hmm. that she's tweeted. And while she's on the flight from London to South Africa, Mm -hmm. powered down, someone finds it. She only has 170 followers on her Twitter account. I think she's public, though. Someone finds it, sends it to Gawker. Gawker has, the journalist at Gawker has 15,000 followers and he retweets it and she, her life is literally blown up by this. And so when she gets off the plane in South Africa, she has all the mentions in the world in her inbox. She's been, she's hearing from people she hasn't spoken to since high school and they're all like, I'm so sorry about what's happening to you. And you see this downfall of someone who didn't really think anything through or think everything through before she hits sin. And so for my students especially, a lot of them are interested. They're all mostly comm majors who are interested in PR. Mm -hmm. I say, well, first of all, shouldn't you have learned this in a PR class to be very, very careful about what it is that you're posting? And they're like, oh, yeah, we would never do that. But then we actually take a look at all the other things that we don't always think through. And so this is where the line that we're we're clever but stupid. Mm -hmm. We think we're being funny about something but our joke may not land well because you miss all the there's cues that are filtered out from being able to understand like any nonverbals that might have been intended mm-hmm. or you can't really read anyone's tone you can read into a tone but you can't actually read the you know the, the one-liner or something like that in the tone that the sender actually meant so we get into a deep conversation about that and then look at even more present-day examples so Just this past week, there was a um, situation where I went to school in Ohio where someone filmed a conversation that was happening in a restaurant um, at dinner, and they framed it as a very racist situation where the family was talking about things that that offended the other people who were filming it, and the students got to see both sides of the story because the student who was, uh, or the the person who was cast at fault in the the film was able to respond before she deleted all of her social media. Mm -hmm. Um, And in doing so, they were like, well, I don't really see what was wrong. And so they've come to this conclusion that now people are trying to out other folks when it comes to things because there are hot button issues like race and sexuality and all of these other things. And they'll look to, they're looking for that drama, they're looking for that thing that maybe can make themselves internet famous, but then also just, they they want to have some sort of mark on this social commentary that's currently happening.
0: Right, so you have to think about what the motivations are of the person who's spreading that information. I mean, when you're sitting by, like you're sitting behind the keyboard, and you're about to send out a tweet, are there things that you would say to think about, I mean, are there ways to maintain your privacy even if you want to be active on Twitter? And are there just, just precautions?
3: <laughs> Realizing that taking a second to think about it before you hit send, before you, before you actually let that utterance go out into the world. Um, understanding that if it's something that you think is funny, like you might want to check your humor and make sure that it may not be offensive to someone else. Um, but I think that just remembering that everyone that we connect with is actually a person on the other side Um, because I think a lot of times we get into behaviors that are disinhibited because of the screen. We don't realize that if we're tweeting or posting something on Instagram or Snapchat or whatever.
0: Commenting on something.
3: Right, that there's there's someone else who can read it. And if you're communicating directly with someone, just realizing that, that, that there's a person on the other side because that's what ends up happening I think in some of these like flaming wars that no one really calls it flaming anymore but when you get into this back and forth Facebook battle or whatever we start tearing people apart and not really realizing like would you say that to their face um, because there's a screen there uh, oftentimes we behave in ways that we wouldn't normally if we were in a face-to-face interaction so I think remembering that too is this something that you would say If you were in a room full of people because that's essentially what it is is if you put something on twitter it's you're in a you're
0: in the entire world like someone on the other side of the
3: the world could be reading your content
0: should i assume that i am always being watched or recorded yes (laughs) yeah so i I think so by and and that could be anything right that could be a camera at a store it could be could it be my own phone
3: it's funny you bring that one up uh we were just talking about this recently um a couple of people on my hall at the mount in our offices about how things that we say end up becoming ads that we I mean, we've never searched for the thing online we've never done anything but it's been uttered in a conversation and then you get an ad for it the next day so an example that i had is a uh, one of my colleagues and i were talking about amazon fashion and I didn't even say it. I was just listening to him talk about Amazon Fashion and this new service that Amazon is providing. And the next day, an ad showed up on my Facebook for Amazon Fashion, and I screenshotted it and sent it to him. I was like they were li- somebody was listening to our conversation because I've never searched it. I'm not even on Stitch Fix, none of those mm. things. And all of a sudden, Amazon Fashion showed up literally the next day. I don't. I find that too hard like too coincidental, like for it to have happened the next day. And there have been other instances. My students uh, have talked about how they have had similar things that have happened to them. Like one student said that he was listening to um, or watching something on Netflix that mentioned some specific brand of tequila that he would never search for, but he was also scrolling through Instagram doing this multi-screen thing. And then within probably the next day, I think he said there was an ad for that specific brand of tequila. That algorithm knows you watch that show it heard it maybe. Or, oh, mm-hmm. so our question is is there are there listening devices and one of my students even asked is there something that can see your products even because they had um is your camera like looking because they had a, a specific brand of oatmeal that they would have never bought but they got as a free sample and then that ad popped up
0: hmm.
3: on their phone the next day,
0: isn't there that picture of Mark Zuckerberg with like a little thing over his camera on his laptop? I, don't oh, I think I saw that picture somewhere. Probably like... a lot of students and a lot of people in general
3: <laughs> do put a yeah, tab a over, their, over their webcam. I don't, I probably should, but I kind of feel like I don't have anything to hide. But at the same time, that's what most people I think say oh, I have nothing to hide, so what does it really matter? And it should matter to us, like, we should be concerned about who and what, how much information is out there.
0: I think that's a really interesting question. Would you care if everything you ever searched or said or whatever was made public? And maybe if you know younger people are keeping that in mind, how does that affect their behavior and the way they live their life if they're constantly used to a world where you could be being watched or listened to or at least monitored in the way you're searching? I mean... It's just an assumption that whatever I do, it could go on the internet. Right.
3: Well, going back to that assignment that I have given to my students, I asked them to kind of look at their lives online, both personally and professionally, and realize that even though they feel like some of their platforms are just for personal use, that employers, future employers could potentially be looking into those to see, to just get another angle into who you are as a person, and that they might want to even consider that even though you're using this specific platform personally, there's still some sort of personal brand that you have that comes off of it. And that how you situate yourself on that platform, even if you are just using it personally, could, could be problematic if it's not, if the things that you're posting aren't necessarily what you would want future employers to see.
0: So what, 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 um, what site would that be? What
3: um, platforms on the, at this point there a lot of it is more, mostly on facebook i would say but because tra- trajectories are showing that most young adults really they have facebook profiles but they're not using them they right. they check in every now and then but on the flip side of that there we talk about the the fact that some employers would say well why are you not there then if they're not able to find you on facebook the same problem could arise Such a double-edged short right sword. You why why aren't you there yeah. what do you
0: have to hide you have to have a twitter but you can't accidentally post something that could be offensive or could be i don't know right or way, yeah.
3: depending on like how you decide you want your life to be i guess too yeah um it's just really interesting. Like, there are so many different ways that we can carry ourselves. So I I have a both perf- professional and a personal Twitter account. I very rarely use my personal anymore just because my two lives are melding into I have to be kind of both. So I give my yeah. students, like, a little, a little bit of a taste of my personal life through my professional Twitter and all the people who follow me on it. Um, but most of what I tweet is
0: fairly safe, I would say. So – Instagram and Facebook are talking to each other, mm-hmm. right? Facebook owns Instagram. Right. So any data that, or information or location or whatever you give to one, the other one has. I mean, what can you say about the way data is stored and the way data is shared in terms of those social media platforms? I would say that
3: because... Something Once you put something in on any site, regardless of it just being Facebook or, or Instagram, there's going to be a cache of it someplace. And in terms of storing data, I would say that Facebook and um, Instagram both kind of operate under the idea that you've shared that information. Facebook especially is all about sharing. In fact, Zuckerberg is, is quoted as having, say, as, as having said that sharing is the evolving norm. This is what we have to become aware of. And because we use that word sharing, I almost feel as though uh, it reverts us back to kindergarten when we when we learn what sharing is. You know, when you share for the first time, it, you allow someone else to have the thing. Mm-hmm. And so Facebook feels as if they own then that information and can do with it what you
0: please because you have shared it with them. Is that – and legally, I mean, you've put something on their website. Right. Um
3: it's their website. Yeah. And you there's a terms of services that you've probably just not read and clicked okay, I agree, because you want to be connected. You want to feel as though you're part of the conversation. There's the whole idea of the fear of missing out, the whole idea of, well, my friends are all on Instagram, so I want to be there too, or I wanna use this in a way that could potentially make me stand out professionally. And so the question ends up becoming If you're not on it what are you missing and what other opportunities could could pass you by so there's really not a question of being able to be not connected Um, i think that it's almost becoming a requirement and then once you're in and you've spent all this time curating an account and you if you start realizing oh wait what about my privacy what about my security what are you going to do with all of your photos that you've posted to Facebook or Instagram, like that might be the only place that they exist because yeah. our technologies, we, we usually replace a phone every couple of years. So unless you've saved those pictures externally somewhere on yeah. another, like on a jump drive or in the cloud or someplace, how else are you going to access them? It's gotten to a point that I have friends uh, who have created Facebook profiles for their children now. Like their Facebook has a memory book That allows you to tag your children in photos and so some of these kids their whole lives will be on Facebook right which is another it brings in this other question is like how how will they even feel about that when they are of the age of consent or the age like you know when they become adults to see that their entire lives have been chronicled but that is for all intents and purposes their baby book
0: right if Facebook's saying you chose to share this a child who grows up and has had their parents sharing all this stuff, they could say, I never opted into this, you know, just that sense of do you really control your own privacy at all? Right.
3: Yeah. yeah. So it's really interesting. I'm n I am i do not really yeah. know what's gonna end up happening with that. There's there's a need for more regulation, but I think that because technology improves at faster rates than we can create laws for or even rules that can govern how we use it before we even know what's happening right yeah something else changes and there's just no it's hard for for the laws and the rules and
0: the regulations to keep up with
3: just how quickly technology changes
0: do the same concerns apply to snapchat like i I know most kids aren't using snapchat anymore but a lot of them are at least college students are at the mount they are i know uh that seems to be like one
3: of the huge things that they're using um one of the, the most popular platform
0: those photos just disappear right it's like i never took it right right
3: i guess so i i am on it i don't really i don't know quite honestly i there's always the fear that someone can screenshot anything that you've sent um you are at least now notified if someone screenshots a snap that you send but even though they're disappearing i still i have this hunch that they're there somewhere yeah. I just don't know where they are. So I, I'm not savvy enough to
0: know how to, to access that type of log, but I'm sure it exists someplace. Are there other things besides thinking of shaming? Are there other topics that come up when you're discussing privacy and maybe some things that students wouldn't think of, wouldn't think to consider in terms of privacy online?
3: I think they, because they do so much online, they they don't really think too much about you know, the fact that we just buy everything. You can buy your books through Amazon. You can buy, uh, a lot of them are buying supplies or clothes or things online. And it's interesting that every, like, at least th- this time it didn't happen, but the last two times that I taught privacy the previous two semesters, my credit card was, like, it, I, I had to go get a new one. Someone had been, it was it had been lifted both days. And I know there was no real correlation, but it just goes to show how quickly someone can wipe your information or take your information from using an unencrypted website or from even a scanner on a gas gas station. And so mm-hmm. I think that they're aware of the the potential problems that, uh, or the potential uh, issues that arise with using even their, their, their credit card information online. Um, but they just, again, they sort of accept it and they realize, oh, well, my bank will replace it. If if someone takes this, I can close that account and just get a new one. And so there's just like this replaceable mentality that they have. Um, for college students specifically, I don't they're, – they're marked with a sense of apathy, but at the same time, because it's just been their life, this is how things are for them. Um, they've not really known a different way, if that makes sense. Yeah. So um, I'm not really sure if there's something that they can or if they're thinking that th- they, they don't already know. Like they're just sort of like, okay, well, that's just the way life
0: is. So I have to accept it. Would you say there are more pros or cons to being on social media? Oh, gosh. Um, I would say <laughs> uh, equal sense of both. Um,
3: I would. I, I think that if social media were used for – the purpose that it was like that everyone would think that it was originally created for to give a voice to the voiceless to, um, really be a, a mechanism to make the world more connected, and there be like a little bit less money involved. But the world always comes back to that monetary thing. Um, I think it, it there would be a whole lot more pros, but because there's our own livelihoods at stake and there it's like we were saying before it's too difficult to keep up with how quickly our technology is is transforming it's there are a lot of cons too so i would think that because i've it's kind of my livelihood i teach about it i i I do research about it i think that i would i want to say that there are more pros associated with it but you have to realize that there's a healthy dose of cons as well and that you have to take measures to to protect yourself and maybe take a chance to actually read through the terms of services and the conditions that you're accepting when we just blindly click through all of those things or if there's an update or something like that to kind of take a, a look at what exactly we're, we're talking about and giving up.
0: Um, are, is there any research that you've done on social media that you think would be relevant? I mean, anything um, in particular that you've studied in terms of social media and, and privacy or?
3: Most of what I do in terms of social media privacy or is just in the classroom okay. I haven't done actual like I've not written anything on it mm-hmm. uh, most of my work on social media comes from practical use of yeah. it for I, I do it for um, a church that I work for mm-hmm. and so I look at it more so how it, it can be used positively to to make connections between you know the members of a parish or members of whatever community you're working for, but then also give you that, that footprint to to have your information available to people who might need it. Um, because that's if that's where the people are going to be online, on Snapchat, on Instagram, on Facebook, on Twitter, wherever they are, then you should have a voice there. So uh, that's most of my work then revolves around the practical use of it mm-hmm. for, for businesses or, or small small organizations.
0: Yeah. Okay. Well, thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. No problem. Thanks.
1: Frederick Uncut is produced by Graham Cullen, Emma Kerr, and me. Join us next week for an all new episode.